young cowboy named Billy Joe grew restless on the farm. A boy filled with wanderlust who really meant no harm. He changed his clothes and shined his boots and combed his dark hair down. And his mother cried as he walked out. Don't take your guns to town, son. Leave your guns at home, Bill. Don't take your guns to town. This is Our American Stories. It's been called the peacemaker, the equalizer, the gun that won the West, Colt. The name is legendary. The gun, an historic American icon. The Colt revolver helped tame the frontiers, win wars, and spark a revolution in American manufacturing. There's an old West adage that goes something like this. Quote, God created man, Abe Lincoln freed them, but Sam Colt made them equal. Samuel Colt became America's first industrial tycoon, and his faithful wife, Elizabeth, proved herself to be no less extraordinary, making Sam Colt's legend bigger than ever and his empire her own. Phil Anschutz writes in Out Where the West Begins, quote, Samuel Colt's life was the American story written in capital letters. Let's take a listen to that story. Samuel Colt is born July 19, 1814 in Hartford, Connecticut. His first five years of life are spent in privilege because of his father's business success. But from the age of six to 14, Samuel Colt loses his mother and sister to tuberculosis, and then loses a brother and another sister to suicide. At 11, he's indentured to a farmer. Colt begins reading from the Compendium of Knowledge, a scientific encyclopedia containing biographies of famous inventors. He gains knowledge of practical chemistry and becomes obsessed over fireworks and underwater explosives. Then, after one of his fireworks experiments sets his school ablaze, he's expelled. Here's William Hosley, author of Colt, The Making of an American Legend. Sam Colt came from a kind of difficult background. His mother died when he was seven. He didn't take to his formal studies, but he liked taking things apart and putting them back together again. He also liked explosives. He was kind of a prankster, and it got him in a lot of trouble. After his expulsion, Colt's father enlists his troublesome 16-year-old boy as a seaman on a ship. You watch your back, but you be respectful. You understand me? That will be sailing halfway around the world to Calcutta, India. Well, here he is. Nice strong worker, just like I told you. His father hopes that the journey will teach his son responsibility and that he will learn a trade as a seaman. But instead, the trip fills Samuel Colt with another idea. Colt is fascinated by guns and believes there's a way to make them better. It's the early 19th century. Battles are fought with sabers and single-shot muskets. Here's Ashley Lubinsky, curator at the Cody Firearms Museum in Cody, Wyoming, explaining the limited and cumbersome nature of guns at the time. 
you had to load it from the top of the gun, and you took a whole cartridge, which was powder, the projectile, and paper, and you would end up putting it down the barrel with a rod. So loading single shotguns weren't horribly efficient. It would take you about a minute or so to load three shots if you were really good. Colt has a revolutionary idea inspired by the giant steering wheel on his ship. He sees that the mechanisms that are used to uh, steer and control these ships had ratchets. And when they rotated the wheel, that it would cock and that these ratchets would hold it in place. Like the ship's wheel with axles, spokes, a barrel and handles, Colt notices that regardless of which way the ship's wheel spins, each spoke always came in direct line with a clutch that could be set to hold it. Colt envisions a firearm with a cylinder that can turn after each shot and lock, and then be fired multiple times. While on board the ship, Colt carves a wooden prototype of a revolving cylinder mechanism out of scrap wood. This is the beginning of the revolver. When Colt returns to America, he's a young man determined to turn his vision into a reality. Colt is a complex man who learns self-promotion. At an early age, the young entrepreneur developed a hustler's streak. From 1832 to 1836, Colt travels throughout America as Dr. Colt, spelled C-O-U-L-T, as the playbills read giving demonstrations of the newly discovered nitrous oxide, or laughing gas. In Out Where the West Begins, Phil Anschutz adds some color. Quote, Clad in a fashionable coat and top hat, and surrounded by smoking beakers, wax demons, mummies, and exploding fireworks, Colt persuaded spectators to sniff a bag coated with nitrous oxide. Sam guaranteed his audience a good half-hour's laugh at the resulting spectacle. Colt's mix of salesmanship with showmanship is on par with the likes of P.T. Barnum. While touring the country, Colt goes looking for investors interested in his revolver. Go on. Take a shot. How about another? And your revolver works the same way. It always keeps you loaded. This is going to revolutionize the world. He is the consummate salesman. When Sam Colt would come to you and ask for money, he's so over the top and he's such a unique personality, it's going to completely win over whoever he's asking. With the help of wealthy New Jersey relatives and friends, Colt raises $230,000, the equivalent of over $6 million today, and begins manufacturing his revolver. So, what do you think? Am I onto something? And when we come back, more on the life of Samuel Colt and the birth of the revolver. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the remarkable story of Samuel Colt and the birth of the revolver. So, what do you think? Am I onto something? There were bugs at first. You don't want any chance that if you pull the trigger on a revolver, more than one bullet's gonna go off at the same time, or even blow up the cylinder. Colt improves his design, and in 1836 is awarded a patent to a 28 caliber, five-shot repeating firearm with a revolving cylinder. It's called the Colt Patterson, and it's like nothing the firearms industry has ever seen. Colt is 23 years old. But Colt's new revolver is proving a tough sell. Lawmen and military are not willing to take a chance on such a new and untested design. In 1842, after six years and a production run of 5,000 pistols and rifles, Colt declares bankruptcy and liquidates his assets. But 2,000 miles southwest in the new state of Texas, the Colt revolver is about to be put to the test. Here's Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Sam Colt's first large sale of his revolver went not to the U.S. Army, which rejected the gun outright, but to the Texas Navy. But plagued by lack of funding and political battles, the Texas Navy nearly ceased to exist by 1844, and its Colt's revolvers then went to the Texas Rangers. The Rangers' first use of the revolvers came in the Battle of Walker's Creek in June 1844. Jack Hayes and 15 of his Rangers were out scouting for Comanche Raiders when the Comanche discovered them. The numbers were to the Comanche liking. Chief Yellow Wolf led more than 70 Comanche warriors. What Yellow Wolf and the other Comanche didn't count on was the Colt revolver. And every ranger was armed with two Colts. They were used to hearing the one shot go off, and then they all scramble to load, and then the next shot goes off. But imagine then hearing bang, bang, bang. Would have been incredibly powerful and something to be incredibly intimidated by. After several failed attempts at charging and overwhelming the outnumbered rangers, the Comanche broke and fled, dropping shields, lances, and bows. A Comanche chief said he would never fight the rangers again because they had a shot for every finger on their hands. On the ridge! Rifles! Then in 1846, the Mexican-American War breaks out after the constant border battles between Captain Samuel Walker and his Texas Rangers in the country of Mexico. 
for Walker and his men, the time it takes to reload a gun is often the difference between life and death. For every shot the Mexicans fire with their standard rifles, Walker's men can fire five. It's the beginning of a new era in warfare. Sam Walker began experimenting with how to use this. It's like, what do they got? What is this secret weapon? This is something we've never seen before. You don't have to have a single shot. You don't have to load the gun. Every time you fire, you've got something that you can load several rounds in. On November 30th, 1846, Captain Samuel Walker writes Samuel Colt a letter that will change the course of history. That letter reports how the Colt pistol changed the way he and his rangers fight. With a $25,000 U.S. government contract for a thousand pistols that Walker arranged, and with the design modifications that Walker suggested, a larger gun with six shots rather than five, Sam Colt re-entered the gun manufacturing business in 1847. The revolver went through the process of user influence, in influencing both design and also the practical use of the thing. They tinkered with this invention. Colt develops a 44 caliber, four pound, nine ounce revolver named the Walker after the man who made it happen. Increase the black powder by 60 grains. The barrel to nine inches. The Colt Walker is a much heavier gun, heavier caliber than Colt's original invention. But these Texas Rangers could handle that type of firearm. Many consider the Walker the mightiest handgun of its day, with firepower that won't be matched for 90 years until the release of the 357 Magnum. Colt's business soars, and the name Colt becomes synonymous with revolvers. Sam Colt created a brand around himself. And so what he was trying to establish there was that he was the guy, he was the brand. When you saw him, you thought success. But Colt's most revolutionary idea isn't in his new design, it's in how he puts it together. More than half a century before Henry Ford used mass production assembly lines in his automobile factories, Colt employed them to produce his revolvers in his enormous Hartford armory beginning in the 1850s. Using interchangeable parts, Colt's armory could turn out 150 weapons per day by 1856. The mass production allowed Colt to make his weapons more affordable to gun buyers settling in the West. Colt's mass production achievement is only matched by the revolver's quality. Samuel Colt is an absolute perfectionist. Now, one of these guns is not up to Colt's standard. You choose. Wrong. It's this one. See the blemish? I don't allow any imperfections to leave my factory. Americans are also taken with the way in which this pistol of industrialization was itself like a small factory. 
It was a bullet-firing machine as opposed to a single-shot instrument. Once Cole perfected the system for mass-producing complex metal instruments like firearms, that system was readily adapted to make typewriters, sewing machines, and eventually bicycles, motorcycles, automobiles, cameras, you name it. In 1849, as the California Gold Rush begins, Colt develops the legendary 1840 pocket revolver, the single most successful pistol produced in his lifetime, with 325,000 sold by the time of his death. Most historians agree that the most serious mistake Colt makes is firing employee Roland White after he presented him with a patent on a new innovation. Powder and ball in the front, primer in the back. Reloading would be much faster. Up until this time, the shooter poured powder into each of the six-cylinder mouths, then push a bullet over the powder, and then load a percussion cap on the rear of the cylinder, making the reloading process cumbersome, to say the least. Roland White came up with this idea for a board-through cylinder that would allow you to load the firearm from the rear. It's not something Colt had. The fire from one shot will set off every chamber. It's dangerous. And when we come back, the rest of this remarkable story, Samuel Colt's story, the revolver's story, here on Our American Stories. And we return to the life of Samuel Colt and the birth of the revolver. And now the last installment of this story. With almost a complete monopoly on the revolver, Colt isn't ready to take a chance on something new. Here's Mitt Romney. My dad used to say, there's nothing as vulnerable as entrenched success. Sundance of an enterprise feels it has no real competition. It becomes complacent, and ultimately it can get wiped out by a small upstart that comes out with a better product. Fired by Colt, Roland White takes his groundbreaking idea to two men who intend to be Colts 
biggest rivals, Horace Smith and Daniel Wesson. They jump at White's patent and gladly pay him a royalty. With this move, one of the most iconic names in gun making is born. Smith & Wesson. Samuel Cole built his business on the back of the Mexican-American War. Now it was just a drop in the bucket compared to the impact of the gold rush and Western migration. Then, in the summer of 1856, Colt marries 29-year-old Elizabeth Hart, the daughter of a devoutly Christian and affluent Newport family. Take a seat. But as the 1850s draw to a close, the southern states begin arming themselves. How can I be of service? I'm here representing some gentlemen that are dedicated to a cause. Colt has been supplying arms to the U.S. military for years. But the military is about to be split in two. It's time for Samuel Colt to decide where his loyalties lie. When you're on the outbreak of war, there's a really difficult problem that arises from firearms manufacturers. And that is the balance between loyalty and being a good businessman. In this case, this is a war breaking out in the United States between the North and the South. This isn't America and the other guy. This is their home. In 1860, just one year before the Civil War begins, Colt sells the modern equivalent of more than $3 million worth of guns to the South. A risky move for a Northern businessman. Colt gets labeled a Southern sympathizer, and worse, a traitor. Sam Colt got into a lot of trouble on the eve of the Civil War because he also was believed to be arming the South. But in fact, Colt supplied arms to both sides before the war. After the war began, that stopped. At the outbreak of the Civil War, Colt doubles the size of his armory and his factory is operating around the clock. But for Sam Colt, the success he craved and achieved would ironically contribute to his death. On January 10th, 1862, Samuel Colt dies of gout complications at the age of 47. By this time, Samuel Colt has made and sold one million guns. His 35-year-old widow Elizabeth is left in control of the company in a personal fortune of $15 million, the equivalent of over $300 million today. Elizabeth keeps the business running, even as the war wages on. After losing four children and a husband within five years, Elizabeth has begun to emerge from a year of mourning. Then, on February 5, 1864, Colt's armory bursts into flames and burns to the ground. Elizabeth stands at her window and watches her husband's vision go up in flames. Many believe Confederate sympathizers started the blaze. However, no one ever discovers the real cause. Elizabeth resolves to rebuild the armory while continuing wartime operations in an unburned wing of the building. Elizabeth Colt would also continue to innovate, eventually producing what would become the most famous Colt gun of them all, 
the Colt 45, also known as the Peacemaker, and what we know now as the gun that won the West. It is still in production to this very day. Here again is Dr. Roger McGrath. While much has been made of the 1873 Colt Peacemaker, and rightfully so, many of the famous gunmen of the Old West quickly replaced their single-action peacemakers with Colt's new double-action revolvers in 1877. Colt offered the new revolver in a 38 caliber, which was called the Lightning, and in a 41 caliber, which was christened the Thunderer. Among the many gunslingers who quickly adopted Colt's new revolver were Billy the Kid and John Wesley Harden. When the Civil War finally ends, America is transformed in countless ways, not least of which is gun ownership. Most of the soldiers come home with a prized possession. The Civil War really marks a turning point for firearms in American history with a revolver and with mass production really taking off. People were able to start buying revolvers. It's really the birth of a huge movement in America with firearms. People are still carrying the revolver because it's a reliable gun today. Colt transformed his products into icons, and his Colt revolvers became fixed in the American imagination as the very symbol of Western independence. The story of the Colt company after Colt family ownership continues to be one of innovation in weaponry. The Gatling gun, Browning rifles and machine guns, and the M16. During the 19th century, Samuel Colt did for pistols what fellow Connecticut native Eli Terry did for clocks. He made guns affordable for the average American. Couple that with the spread of armaments after the Civil War and what you have is an American inheritance passed on from the 19th to the 20th century. Anchored to the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, Americans in the 21st century have also inherited the notion that gun ownership is a normal, solidified, and self-evident aspect of American life. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg, and what a story the cult story is. And by the way, we've gotten any number of business stories from the great book by Phil Antritz, Out Where the West Begins. There's a part two, and we're going to be digging into some of those stories too, and that's more of the cultural uh, effect of innovators there. Uh, But Out Where the West Begins, the first one, was about business leaders, and how they impacted the growth of this country. And it's ignored in textbooks. It's ignored in schools. Uh, been a business innovators and how they've changed America. And we've done the, the Coors story, the Cyrus McCormick, J.P. Morgan, Andrew Carnegie. Other stories, by the way, that we've done right here on Our American Stories. Henry Ford's, Harley Davidson's, Steinway, the story of the piano makers in New York, Sam Walton, who changed retail forever, and Fred Smith, who had an idea when he was at Yale and in college that overnight delivery could happen, and he was the founder of FedEx. 
and told us here on this show that everything he learned, he learned when he was in the Marines. These business stories are stem winders. No one knows what's going to happen. And as we learned from the Colt story, changed America as we know it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story, Samuel Colt's story, the birth of the revolver, its story. More after these messages. we continue with our American stories and all commencement season long we bring you some of the best commencement speeches of the year and of the past two decades and the next commencement address is by best-selling author and the president of the American Enterprise Institute Arthur Brooks he delivered the 2019 commencement address at Brigham Young University let's take a listen several years ago I came to this beautiful place to BYU to deliver lecture My wonderful host sent me home with a a ton of branded souvenirs. T-shirts, mugs, you name it. You guys are great at product placement. One particularly nice gift that I got that day was a briefcase. And it had BYU emblazoned across the front. Now as it happened, I actually needed a new briefcase, but I kind of hesitated to use it because of the logo. It felt a little weird, like false advertising. See, I'm not a member of the faculty of BYU, nor am I a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm a Catholic. Somebody told me, by the way, that I'm your favorite Catholic, but I figure you say that to all the Catholics, so. (laughs) Anyway, my wife Esther, when I expressed this hesitance, she said, you know, that's ridiculous. She said, use the briefcase, it's beautiful. Okay, so I loaded it up, I took it out on the road. I travel all the time, I'm in airports constantly. And here's the weird thing. I noticed that people would look at my briefcase and then they'd look up at me. And they'd have this weird look on their face, like I've never seen an aging hipster Mormon before. Excuse me, Latter-day Saint. Now, it gave me some amusement, but but here's the funny part. I found that it was changing my behavior. I was acting with greater love and kindness than I ordinarily would. People would look at my briefcase and I'd say, I want to help with their luggage. (laughs) I want to give up my place in line, that sort of thing. Why? Because I was unconsciously trying to live up to the high standards of kindness of your church and your university. At very least, not to hurt your well-earned reputation for kindness. You know what else? I I even stopped carrying cups of coffee. (laughs) Look, I love coffee, but, but I didn't want people to think that a member of your church is a hypocrite. I had this paranoid fantasy 
you know? Like I, I, some guy telling his wife, you know, I saw this Mormon guy in O'Hare Airport ordering a venti latte at Starbucks. You know, I knew they were hypocrites. I didn't want that. And you know what? That briefcase made me a happier person, a more loving person. I was like the person I wanted to be. Why? Because I was trying to be like, like you. So what's the lesson here? It's not that your BYU briefcases have magic properties. It's that your greatest witness to the world as members of this community is the conduct of your life. Our nation and world need this. They need you more than ever today. If you pay attention to politics or television or social media, God forbid, what do you see? You see recrimination, reproach, insults, sarcasm. You see leaders at the highest levels of our country who bully and berate those with whom they disagree. You see families torn apart over political disagreements. You see political foes who treat each other as enemies. People often characterize the current moment in America as being angry. If only this were true. Anger is an emotion that occurs when we want to change someone's behavior and believe that we can do it. According to the research on anger, while it's often perceived as a negative emotion, it's, it's, it has social purpose, and it's not to drive others away. Rather, it's intended to remove problematic elements of a relationship and bring people back together. Believe it or not, there is no evidence that in a marriage, anger is correlated with separation or divorce. For 28 years, I've been married to a Spaniard. The secret to the success of my decades of marriage is the lack of correlation between anger and divorce. <laughs> the problem, my friends, is not anger, it's contempt. In the words of the 19th century philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, contempt is the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another person. The destructive power of contempt is well documented in the work of famous social psychologist and relationship expert John Gottman, who teaches at the University of Washington in Seattle. Over the, over the course of his work, Gottman has studied thousands of married couples. The biggest warning signs of divorce, he explains, are indicators of contempt. These include sarcasm, sneering, hostile humor, and worst of all, eye-rolling. Hmm. I have teenage kids. I see lots of eye-rolling. But if you roll your eyes at somebody you love, woe be unto you. That is a little act that says you're worthless to the one person, your spouse, the person you should love more than any other. You want to see if a couple will end up in divorce court? Watch them discuss contentious topics and see if either partner rolls his or her eyes. And just as contempt ruins a marriage, it can tear a country apart. America has developed a culture of contempt, a habit of seeing people who disagree with us, not merely as incorrect or misguided, but as worthless. This is causing incredible harm to our country. One in six Americans have stopped talking to close friends or family members over politics since the 2016 election. Millions are organizing their social lives and curating their news and information to avoid hearing viewpoints differing from their own. Ideological polarization is at higher levels than at any time since the American Civil War. Listen now. Listen to the words of Church President Russell M. Nelson. Quote, Hatred among brothers and neighbors has now reduced sacred cities to sites of sorrow. Unquote. He said this in 2002. Today it's even truer, isn't it? And this is harming more than our nation. Remember that America is a beacon of hope for the rest of the world. We are an example 
of democratic capitalism that has pulled two billion of our brothers and sisters out of starvation level poverty over the past half century alone. It, this is a nation that's attracted you or your ancestors with a promise of equal opportunity, religious freedom, and a good life for you and your family. When America's torn apart, we become incapable of living up to the plan, the holy plan for our nation, which is to shine a light for the rest of the world. So what do we need? Some say we need to agree more, but that's wrong. Disagreement is good because competition is good. It makes us sharp and strong, whether in sports, politics, economics, or in the world of ideas. We don't need to disagree less. We need to disagree better. Other people say we need more civility, but that's wrong too. Civility is a hopelessly low standard for us as Americans. Imagine I told you that my wife Esther and I are civil to each other. You'd say to get some counseling. If we're going to beat the problem of contempt, we're going to need something more radical than civility, something that speaks to our heart's true desire. We need love which was defined by Thomas Aquinas as to will the good of the other. We need a new generation ready to model lives of love in the midst of the culture of contempt. We need young people who can live out in today's culture the words of the book of Helaman, chapter 5. And it came to pass that they did go forth and did minister unto the people, and as many as were convinced did lay down their weapons of war, and also their hatred and the tradition of their fathers. He was talking about you. Make no mistake, this isn't easy to do. It requires people who will not run away from the problem, who are unafraid to infiltrate the culture of contempt, who are capable of modeling a better sense of value and values. This requires the agility to be in the culture, but not of it. When you think of it, it's kind of like missionary work, isn't it? Missionaries have the training and experience to participate in society without getting sucked into his pathologies. They have the courage and fortitude necessary to face resistance and go forth with the joy that comes from sharing the truth. Just out of curiosity, do you happen to know anyone with missionary experience? <clears throat> well, guess what? It's time to dust off that experience and use it in a brand new way, starting today. Near my home, there's a Catholic retreat center where my wife and I teach marriage preparation class to engage couples. In the chapel, there's a sign posted over the door, but, but not the door coming in. It's posted over the door before you go out into the parking lot. It's written for people to look at as they're leaving. Here's what it says. You are now entering mission territory. The message is simple, but it's, it's really profound. You're here because you've found what's good and true. But you're going out to where people haven't found what you've discovered. You have the privilege of sharing it with joy and with confidence. That should be a message to you who want to make America and the world better. You know what our world needs. More love, less contempt. You have the skills and you have the training to make this a reality. Most of you have been raised your whole lives with the values that I magically got for a few minutes from my BYU briefcase. You've received an education through hard work at one of the world's greatest universities. Some of you know, maybe all of you, that this university has an unofficial motto. Enter to learn, go forth to serve. You get to live up to that motto starting today. 
to sanctify your learning and ordinary work by lifting up and bringing together a great nation. So ladies and gentlemen of the BYU class of 2019, I pray that our Heavenly Father will bless the world abundantly through you. Congratulations on this accomplishment. And don't forget, you are now re-entering mission territory. God bless you. God bless America. Thank you very much. And you are listening to Arthur Brooks. Beat contempt with love. Enter to learn, go forth to serve. What a great motto for his school. And I love what he said about love. To will the good of the other. Beautiful speech. A great commencement speech by Arthur Brooks at Brigham Young University, 2019. This is Our American Story. is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between and of course we're looking for your stories send them to ouramericannetwork.org that's ouramericannetwork.org and this next story well it's the story of Frank Breyer and the tragedy of the British transport ship Rona in 1943 despite being the largest loss of U.S. troops at sea due to enemy action in a single incident. The full details of the attack weren't released until 1967. Here's Professor of Political Science at Grove City College, Paul Kengor, to tell the rest of the story. Any veteran of World War II can tell you stories. But for Frank Breyer, his story, one he could never forget, was a terrible one. It began the moment his ship, called the Rona, was sunk. When that ship went down on November 26, 1943, Frank's life changed forever. And very few people beyond the men tossed into the sea ever knew what happened. The HMT Rona was an 8,600-ton British troop ship carrying mostly an American crew to the Far East Theater. It went down the day after Thanksgiving in the Mediterranean off the coast of North Africa, the victim of a German missile. But it was not just any German missile. This was, it seems, the first known successful hit of a vessel by a German rocket-boosted radio remote-controlled glider bomb one of the first true missiles used in combat. It was, in effect, a guided missile, and the Nazis had achieved it first. And the results were immediately destructive. According to the website that today serves as the official online gathering spot for the Rona Survivors Association, more lives were lost on the Rona than on the USS Arizona at Pearl Harbor. Over 1,000 boys, to be exact, lost their lives, and their government kept the entire episode a secret out of fear of information being leaked about the power of the German guided missile. 
The government feared the effect on the morale of the U.S. military and the wider population. The hit was so devastating, states the Rona Survivors Association, that the U.S. government placed a veil of secrecy upon it. The government, it said, still does not acknowledge this tragedy. And thus, most families of the casualties still do not know the fate of their loved ones. It's very sad that only now, long after the few survivors are even fewer, the Rona survivors are attempting to hold reunions over 70 years after the event. The secrecy was so tight that Frank Breyer's daughter, Mary Jo, spent painstaking years with her dad trying to tug out details and piece together what occurred. Dad was haunted frequently by this, Mary Jo told me, but it was not so much the sinking of the ship, but his personal inability to save many men. Those awful moments of fire remain seared in Frank's brain. As the ship burst into a giant fireball, Frank manned the ropes of a lifeboat packed with injured soldiers. He was ordered to hold the ropes tight and lower the boat with the soldiers into the water below. This was no simple task, especially in a chaotic panic situation. A lifeboat filled with men isn't light. That was proven quickly as the ropes broke and Frank watched the men below him in his care fall to their death in the sea. The image of those men slipping from his hands into the abyss horrified him. But the nightmares, they would come later. In the meantime, Frank too was forced to abandon ship, which submerged within merely an hour. For his own crowded lifeboat, he and five other men seized a floating wooden bench. As the darkness slowly enveloped them with night setting in and with the fear of still more German missiles, Frank led the group in reciting the Lord's Prayer. They say there are no atheists in foxholes. Well, there were none on that wooden bench in the water that night either. Frank and his group with their floating wooden bench took turns. Four of them would float on the bench and two would hang on the ropes. They feared not only Germans, but sharks, and for good reason. Anyone familiar with the horror story that was the USS Indianapolis knows how the sharks slowly but steadily devoured the boys floating in the water over a course of several long days. The crew of six tried to get some sleep while floating in the cold water, but couldn't. They needed to stay focused on holding on to their floating device, the bench. To their great fortune, they were in the water only for about six hours. Just as the sun started to rise, they spied a rescue boat on the horizon. It was a minesweep that picked them up. They were taken to a facility in Algeria to recover. But for Frank, there was little emotional comfort. All he could think about was the wounded soldiers that he couldn't save. But worst of all, Frank could not share what he was going through. They were ordered not to write or talk about the Rona with their family or even among themselves. The military censorship was so strict that they were threatened with court-martial if they ever disobeyed. And so Frank kept it secret all the way to the grave, tormenting him yearly, monthly, weekly, daily, night after night throughout the rest of his life. Frank Breyer died on January 4th, 2016 at age 92, seven decades after the sinking of the Rona. He now at long last rests in peace. Let us at long last remember him and the entire crew of the Rona. And thanks again to Paul Kengor. And that was his story and his contribution. And Paul is a professor of political science at Grove City College and the author of A Pope and a President John Paul II, Ronald Reagan, and the extraordinary untold story 
of the 20th century. And there are so many untold stories of World War II and so many of our nation's battles. We tell them here on Our American Stories. And if you have one yourself, family members, something from your family history, and I don't care if it goes as far back as the Civil War. We had one great lady from Memphis who had sent some Civil War letters to us, and we recorded one, and it was just extraordinary. And she'd kept it as a namesake, as a keepsake for her family heritage and her family lineage. So send them to us. We'll have them recorded by you. Again, that was Paul Kengor, and that is Frank Breyer's story and the story of the Rona and all those forgotten men and unknown men who died and perished on that tragic day. Their stories all here on Our American Story. we continue here on Our American Stories, and we talk a lot on this show about criminal justice reform and prisoner re-entry, because my goodness, the folks in prisons, they're going to come out again. And how do they come out? And are they prepared? And do we believe in second chances in this country? And of course we do. And we're not talking about the crazed serial killer, but for those kind of hardened criminals, um, well, that's what prisons are built for. But for others, well, there's got to be a second chance. After prisoners have served their sentences and are released, 60% or more are arrested again within a few years. And as you can imagine, that doesn't work out well for anybody. We read about an organization in California called The Last Mile. It's working to reduce this recidivism rate by offering incarcerated individuals business and technology training. We're joined now by one of the founders of this program, Chris Redlitz. Chris, before we dig into The Last Mile, tell us a bit about your background. Sure. Uh, I live in San Francisco, and I run a venture capital firm called Transmedia Capital. I've been in the Bay Area for the last 25 years, working in technology, running technology companies, investing in technology companies. So been here from sort of the inception of commercialization of the web, sort of from the mid-90s all the way through today. So uh, that's really my background, and, and that is and are some of the things that I've I have leveraged along with my wife, Beverly Parenti, we've leveraged those relationships um, and sort of that support to to launch the last mile. And that's that's really helped us sort of support and grow it as it is today. Indeed. Let's talk a little bit about the prison population in America, because the numbers are staggering. We have two point three million people incarcerated in the United States, a population that's grown 700 percent since the 1970s and at a staggering cost of $48 billion. And mm-hmm. talk about that number and what that meant to you, because I'm sure you bumped across similar numbers. And what led to you wanting to do this? Was there a private moment? Was there a philosophical moment? Was there a policy moment? Or was there an intersection of all three? You know, before I got involved in this, I really had no um, really awareness about what the extent of the criminal justice issues were in mass incarceration in in the country. I was actually invited into San Quentin State Prison, which is 
just north of San Francisco to do a talk to a group of men about business and entrepreneurship uh, as a favor to a friend because she knew that I ran a venture firm. She knew that I had some some understanding of business. And many of the men inside San Quentin had approached her saying, I have all these questions, but I have no one to talk to. So she invited me in one night. Frankly, I was kind of resistant to go in and reluctant to do it, but she was persistent and I relented and went inside one evening. And my expectation at that point was, I'm going to go in, I'm going to talk about what I do. They're not going to understand what I do. They're going to give me sort of blank stares and I'll walk out and that'll be it. And what happened was just the opposite. What was really scheduled as about a 30-minute talk turned into a whole evening discussion because this pack group, um, there was about 50 guys in this room, and they just started asking questions. Guys had business plans, and, and I was just sort of dumbfounded by their desire and their interest in, in really creating a better life after they served their time. So that was the moment that really struck me. And then I went back to Beverly, my wife, and said, you know, this is incredible what I saw. She and I have worked together over the last 20 years, and I knew that I had to, you know, sort of pull her into this as well. So we both did our research, and we saw the recidivism rates in California at the time, over 60%. The cost of incarceration for one specific person just to house was over, at the time, $50,000 a year. And then the numbers that you had talked about, the the number of people incarcerated in, in, in the United States, over 2 million, and, and those numbers started to really resonate. And we realized that we had some resources, we had a network. If we could just help a few of these guys that had met that night, um, that would be helpful. So uh, we created initially an entrepreneurship type of program that we'd go in and we'd start to teach them about what it is to start your business. And she and I went in the first year after we got our program approved just in San Quentin. And we went in two nights a week for 40 straight weeks to teach this program. And frankly, we kind of made it up as we went along. But what came out the other side were men who presented their ideas in a, in a demo day that we actually did inside San Quentin. And their presentations, there were uh, six guys that presented. I invited some of my venture capital friends into the prison to to hear these presentations, and they were extraordinary. So that was really sort of the moment that made us realize that there was an impact and there was desire. And, and then people started saying, how can I help? So we started to build that volunteer base. And, you know, today, you know, we have a whole team and we're growing across the country and it's really exploded. But that was really the first moment for us. Uh, and stunning. And as, as so often happens, you know, you start down one path thinking one thing is going to happen. And you, you stumble upon demand and there was tremendous demand and moreover tremendous talent that I don't think it sounds like even you expected, did you, Chris? No, I didn't expect. I mean, the talent behind the walls is pretty amazing. You know, there are a lot of people who, you know, we talk about giving second chances. There's a lot of men and women that are in our program today that never even really had a first chance. You know, you talk about some of the folks that grew up in broken families. You know, parents were either on drugs, dealing drugs, you know, in gang related environments where they really didn't have a choice. You give them tools and they just exceed expectations. That happened almost every time. You know, I mean, we've got a guy, Jason Jones, who was in foster care when he was eight years old, joined a gang when he was 11 years old, served 14 years in prison, nearly 14 years in prison. He got out this year and he works for a technology company in San Francisco as a software engineer. 
what are the chances of that? But you see that you give people opportunities and they really take them and run with them. And that's really what's happened in the program. Indeed. And the God-given talents of people are distributed equally, but fathers aren't distributed equally. And good schools and opportunities aren't distributed equally. And we all know that if we have any sense about ourselves. By the way, Chris, we've done a bunch of stories on the revolution that's happening in Georgia and Texas on prison reform. Uh, led a lot by evangelical Christians, believe it or not, because they're the ones yep. doing the mission work in the prisons and going, this kid shouldn't be in jail. He's he, he's yep. productive. He's smart. What are we doing here? And enough people led that chorus. Let's talk about the coding and, and, and the actual skill sets you're giving, because it's one thing to teach people how to be entrepreneurs, but that's not for mm-hmm. everybody. The skill set you're giving folks and the demand for the skills that you're supplying, talk about that. Well, yeah. So when we started the entrepreneurship program, we did that for four years and, you know, the results were great. But to your point, soft skills aren't specifically hireable skills for a job. Um, they can apply to a job, but coding is a specific skill that you can be hired for. And this was not an easy task to go to Sacramento, where Corrections is located, and present your idea of we want to teach software engineering inside prison realizing that they cannot have direct access to the internet. And there's was some trepidation about giving, you know, these, we started San Quentin. So these guys, computers and technology, and like, it was a little scary for, I think everyone involved that had to give that approval. So it took a while to get people on the same page. But once we did, we launched this program in 2014 in San Quentin initially we had to create sort of a simulated environment where they could really learn and have the same tools that do on the outside. And it really resonated. You took people that had zero experience. I mean, there were people that were incarcerated for 15, 20 years who had never seen the internet or becoming software engineers, and they have. And we've had multiple people who have gone through the program, graduated from that with zero experience, and now working as software engineers. So it really resonated. And to your point today, there is a huge demand for people in this particular sector. You know, there's a number that floats around that within, uh, by 2020, there'll be a million unfilled software engineering jobs in this country. So there are opportunities if you can prepare people with the right skill. And this is really one area where people are less concerned about your history and more concerned about if you can do the job. And also with the skill, you can work remotely. So you don't necessarily have to be in that particular city or state or town to do work for tech companies. So there are a lot of advantages around teaching the skill, and it's really resonated. And this is the program that we are actually taking across the country today. Indeed, and you've got prisoners teaching other prisoners right now as well, which is just remarkable because there's nothing better you can do with a young man or a young lady than to have them be late leaders. They they just act differently once they're mentors and not just mentees. That's so true. I mean, it's you just see people blossom. And think about it, in prison, the idea of trust, transparency, and vulnerability are all not necessarily things that are pervasive in prison. Those are all things that are important for us, especially when people get out, being very transparent about your background and what you want to do. So the leadership skills that people inside now, after they go the pro- through the program, they become mentors, and you just see them really evolved as leaders. And I, and I think to your point, it's really important as they get out in the world that they can have leadership roles as well. 
And when we come back, we'll continue with Chris Redlitz, the man who founded The Last Mile and is changing lives in prisons across America. Turn to Our American Stories and continue with Chris Redlitz, the founder of The Last Mile, a program that teaches coding, technology, leadership, and entrepreneurial skills to men and women who are currently incarcerated so they can make a better life for themselves when they leave jail. You know, Chris, my family has some experience with this. I have a nephew who's been in and out of prison several times, and he's a good young man who's made some bad choices, and he's paid the price for those choices. He's excited about getting out because he's going to have this HVAC license that he has in his head. He wants to do air conditioning and, and work on homes, and, and he's got his spiritual life on, in order, and we're hoping for the best for this young man. And there are so many roadblocks set up for him, Chris, as he gets out. There's the probation, which, of course, we need, and there are all the fines that he has to keep paying and it's just so hard for so many of these guys and gals to reintegrate into society. And by the way, for all of those listening, we're not talking here about the 5 or 10% who just need to stay behind bars because they're just a danger and a menace to society. We're talking about the 90%, Chris, who sooner or later, they're going to get out. Well, sure. And, and we're not saying people shouldn't serve time. Believe me, there are a lot of people that serve time that should be there and some people shouldn't get out. But the vast majority will get out. And what we're saying is we want to create tools and pathways for them to be successful. So, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of challenges and it really is state by state because each state has different laws and regulations, especially in reentry. But, you know, one thing that is pretty consistent are this really reluctance for companies to hire formerly incarcerated individuals just because of that stigma. And, you know, there are a lot of other things that are challenging. Obviously, when you get out, you really need a job, a place to live. You need, you know, some sort of emotional support and you need a network of peers. So part of what we're doing is all the uh, TLM alumni are connected so that they have this peer support group, which is really important. I mean, to date, we have zero recidivism within our program over the last nine years. I, I really believe that this peer support is highly contributed to that success because it's not about just if I recidivate. It's if I do, I'm going to let down all those people in my community. So I think that's really important. But just little things that, you know, we take for granted, like when you come out, you have to go get an ID. You can't do that before, right? So you have to go and get an ID. You have to really sort of navigate on your own. I mean, when you are released from prison in California, you get $200 and in some cases a bus ticket. That's it. And if there's no one waiting for you at the gate, and I'm just giving an example of San Quentin, you have to have someone receive you at the gate. If no one's at the gate, they take you to the bus station and they drop you off. Can you imagine being in prison for 10, 15, 20 years and getting dropped off at a bus station with $200? and expect success, that's just, you know, that's why the recidivism rates are so high. It's got to be actually absolutely daunting and frightening the moment that happens for someone. Yeah, you're free, but free to do what? And with whom? It's got to be just so daunting. 
It is, and that's why it's so important. And we're building out our reentry program even more expensively today. But those first 60, 90, 120 days are so critically important for someone to have success that if they don't have family, if they don't have a job, they don't have a place to live, those are all components that are really important. And also today with technology, I mean, really, we're so reliant on our mobile devices that, you know, we give all of our graduates access to technology and they need to have a phone and they need to have computers and they need to have those type of things. And those are things, obviously, we teach them inside, but it's different when you get outside and you really have it in your hand. So those are things that, you know, weren't issues 15 years ago. They're issues today about really being comfortable with technology as well, because that's how all of us navigate today. Chris, I want to read something from USA Today, and that's where we discovered the last mile and learned about the amazing work you're doing. Quote, one code buster is Thalia Ruiz, 20, from San Jose, who said she abused drugs and alcohol while gangbanging. Ruiz said the last mile set her on a new path. Quote, I just felt like I had to show them I can get out, I can rehabilitate, and be a better person, she said. I'm not going to get out and keep doing what I was doing. Because I'm just going to end up in the same place that I started, and that's not where I want to be. And by the way, our church visits prisons throughout Mississippi, and I hear almost these exact words over and over again, and I believe almost everybody tells me what they're telling me believes it. Yeah, I mean, that's it. I, you know, it comes back to something you said earlier about hope. What, what we recognized early on that we were providing some hope, and many people inside have no hope. So that's really the sort of the starting point of providing hope. And also there's this physical, but also perceived ceiling of what I can do. And it was important for us to sort of break through that ceiling of what's possible. And there was nothing more powerful than one of our graduates going back into prison, especially a prison they used to live in with a coat and tie and a job and talking about it's really possible. We do that a lot now with our graduates, go back inside, whether it's prison they used to be in or another prison, say it is possible because they can listen to me or they can listen to Beverly. But for them to listen to somebody who's actually been through it is really, really powerful. And that does instill hope across the country. And this is very constructive hope. I mean, it's one thing to have the hope that, look, I'm a, I'm a Christian, so I always want to tell people they're children of God. For people who aren't Christians or for whomever else you're trying to counsel, the word hope is nice, but you're giving them specific, tangible skill sets that give them real self-esteem, something they may have never had in their entire lives. Well, that's true. We have placed our graduates throughout a variety of companies, but uh, what is the consistent response we get from coworkers or CEOs of companies that we place them is these men and women, their work ethic is unparalleled because more than a job, they, this is a chance to really uh, obviously have a restart, but also set an example. So their work ethic is there many, they're the first one there and the last one to leave type of thing. And that's really important to make people realize that these folks, not only do they have a skill, but their work ethic is is such that they set a model example for other employees. Where do you see the last mile, you know, 10 years from now? And it's some, something tells me for all the work you've done in the private sector, that this this is where and what you want your legacy to be. Talk about that. Everyone in the program signs an oath of commitment. And basically that says that I'm going to represent the last mile. 
And if I do anything that is negative to the program, I could be dismissed from it because citizenship is one of the most important things for us. You cannot apply to be part of the last mile program while you're in prison if you've had an infraction two years prior. So people have to be good citizens for a while. If they have an infraction while they're inside, they're dismissed from the program. So the accountability is high. When we started this, Beverly and I were the first to sign that oath, basically saying we're in this for life. So it's a life commitment for both of us. And that's sort of translated through our whole organization today. As we speak, we're in 14 classrooms now in California, Indiana, uh, Kansas, and just opening in, in Oklahoma. Our goal within the next five years is to be in 50 classrooms. I think we'll end up this year at at least 20. We want this to be a national program. We want this to be a program where the last mile, you know, that brand is recognized by employers, that there is quality people that come out of that program. And uh, it's really important for us to, as we have done, to create a public-private partnership. Many of our funding comes from outside of state entities for uh, private foundations or companies that are supporting this. And we want to engage the business community in every area that we are in. So it's not only opening facilities across the country, but engaging businesses as well to help support this and grow it as it's grown so far. And we've been talking to Chris Redlitz, and he's the founder of The Last Mile. And if you want to give to this great and worthy cause, go to thelastmile.org, thelastmile.org. Zero recidivism rates, folks. It doesn't get lower than that, does it? We're a nation that believes in second chances, Chris said. And many of these people we meet in prisons never really got a first chance. This is Lee Habib, Chris Redlett's story. So many inmates and families of inmates' stories, too, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and sciences, and straight to history, and your stories, too. In fact, some of our very best work has come from you. Send your stories to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll take a listen, we'll produce them, and we'll play them. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. And by the way, our next segment is about, well, our favorite subject here on the show. We talk the most in the studio about food, but on the show, most of our content, the biggest category is music. And by the way, about everything, from Sinatra to Miles Davis to Merle Haggard, Whitney Houston, Nirvana, everybody. There's no music we prefer over another, including Vladimir Horowitz's story, the great Russian pianist. It's all good, and music is music. And we're about to take a short yet fascinating trip down a road that leads to modern-day hip-hop. In the beginning, the hip-hop scene was a raw, raw experience. It was an underground music expression that was light years away from the commercial enterprise that it became. But one music producer took the low-budget, lo-fi rawness of hip-hop and put his own polished spin on it, making it accessible to the world. And the world has never been the same since. To tell this story we must first take two steps back to the early 1970s. 
Here's Greg Hengler. In his 1998 book, For the Record, Sly and the Family Stone, Joel Selvin writes, There are two types of black music, black music before Sly Stone and black music after Sly Stone. Though their influence on hip-hop wouldn't be fully realized until the birth of the genre, Sly and the Family Stone had a major impact on hip-hop artists and their musical tastes, as well as the music that they would end up creating. Here's music historian Jason King. Just as the rise of female singer-songwriters in the 1970s meant that people like Joni Mitchell were able to produce their own vision of who they were in the recording studio, you also have the rise of African-American artists who start to use the recording studio in a way that's incredibly creative and very different than the past. People like Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, and Curtis Mayfield, and particularly, I think, Sly from Sly and the Family Stone. These artists became the producers themselves. Here's record producer Arthur Baker. He was his own boss. You couldn't think of anyone telling Sly what to do in the studio. Here's Q-Tip from the hip-hop group A Tribe Called Quest. I can talk about Sly and the Family Stone for a very long time. Okay, play it. Okay. Sly Stone brought in a song craftsmanship to funk that wasn't there. He put his own spin on it, and out came something really unique and bold and just fresh. Here's drummer Questlove, who performs with The Roots for The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. Because of the ongoing conflicts between Sly and his family Stone, he wound up doing his fifth record, There's a Ride Going On, by himself. Here's music historian Oliver Wang. Slystone was such a huge musical experiment. He would try playing with things that most other musicians hadn't thought about. He did it like what now we'd call a home studio. That's Sly playing bass, that's Sly playing guitar, Sly playing keyboards. Of course, he's programming, drum programming on there, which is like early kind of hip hop. Some uptight producer would go, no, I don't want that. That That doesn't sound like real drums. That was the point. It didn't, but it was something funkier. What he did in 1971 will be the gold standard for how musicians will create their music 10 years later. Here's Run DMC's Daryl McDaniels. The significance of the black musician, songwriter, um, singer, producer, whatever, to me, it all boils down to communicating the lives we live. Here's music historian Todd Boyd. It's a generation of people who don't have access to musical instruments, who don't have musical training. They're using music to create new music. We took what was available and created hip-hop. Why you serve? 
With hip-hop, the role of the producer changes completely. You have producers sampling and using drum machines. Here's musicologist Fredera Hadley. The best producers, they have this ability to create a signature tapestry that makes all of these bits and pieces actually sound like an original composition. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. nineties, Dr. Dre basically put West Coast hip hop on the map. He was notorious for having this sound that was unlike anything else. Here's hip hop producer Hank Shockley. Gangsta rap. That music took on a life of its own. And it gave the West Coast and L and LA scene its own voice. Here's record producer Tricky Stewart. I remember the shift when N.W.A. and Dre came into the scene. Sonically, it was polished, but at the same time, it was like this super hard West Coast sound. I'm dropping flavor, my behavior is hereditary, but my technique is very necessary. Blame it on Ice Cube, because it's said it get funky when you got a subject and a predicate. And you felt Dre's presence as one of the greatest hip-hop producers of all time, if not the greatest. Here's music executive Jimmy Iovine. When we started Interscope, I didn't know anything about running a business, and I knew even less about hip-hop. So his fellow John McClain was an A&R guy, he brought this tape and said, we have to sign these guys. I said, who is it? He goes, it's Dr. Dre, it's his solo record, it used to be an NWA. I said, okay. I said, I don't really know a lot about it, but, you know, play it for me. One, two, three, and to the folks. Snoop Doggy Dogg and Dr. Dre is at the door. And I didn't know a lot about it. I didn't understand the music, but I understood the sound. Dre creep to the mic like a fan. Well, I'm peeping and I'm creeping and I'm creeping. So Dre comes in. I said, Dre, who recorded this record? He said, I did. I said, no, no, not who produced it. Who engineered it? He said, I did. I said, wow, this guy's on to something. Here's Dr. Dre. Everybody has to have their own sound. You know what I'm saying? That's what makes it different, you know? And I'm a perfectionist. Because no matter how hard you work in the studio, no matter what you do, you don't know if people people are going to dig it. It's, it's very easy to make a hip-hop record. It's not easy to make a good hip-hop record. When Dre came in with The Chronic, he was using live musicians and recording it very sparse. He's finding samples that we all overlook, pulling from funk and G-funk. You know, you listen to the sample on G thing. Here's RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan. He's hearing things that the average ear will never encounter in a song. And then when he hears it, he'll pull it out. He will pull it out. Here again is Questlove. I'll admit something to you. I was one of the initial naysayers of Dr. Dre's The Chronic was like everything I didn't want hip-hop to be. It was clean, louder, bigger. I wanted my hip-hop dirty. This 
DIY approach, this very low-budget, lo-fi approach to making music. That's what I felt hip-hop should and always be. It took me 10 years to really understand where Dr. Dre was going. And now that I make records, now I understand why this album is so important. What he did for hip-hop and for sampling is that he proved that you can make a record of the highest quality as a hip-hop producer. Besides crafting and popularizing G-Funk, a.k.a. Gangsta Rap, Dr. Dre is the founder and CEO of Aftermath Entertainment, and in 2008, he released his first brand of headphones, Beats by Dr. Dre. It was sold to tech giant Apple in 2014 for a reported $3.2 billion, the most expensive Apple takeover purchase ever. Dre's net worth spiked to an estimated $740 million. Dr. Dre got married to his wife Nicole in 1996. They have two children together, a son named Truth and a daughter named Truly. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. And boy, we learn things here on this show. What a story about an American life, an American musician and producer. Dr. Dre's story here on Our American Stories. 